Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Permack. On today's show, U.S. media asks for an antitrust waiver and what we learned from the latest big tech IPO. But first, the fight over facial recognition. So earlier this week, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency announced that up to 100,000 traveler files were hacked. More specifically, these were photos of travelers at the point of entry, plus associated license plate photos. Now, that a government agency was hacked isn't surprising. That has happened a lot. But it was a bit of a wake-up call about just how much facial imaging data the government is collecting on us and the lack of relevant guardrails. It was a major topic of conversation during a recent congressional hearing where there was rare bipartisan consensus that facial recognition is ripe for government abuse, with lawmakers like Tea Partier Mark Meadows and progressive leader Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez both suggesting that if private companies don't begin addressing such concerns, legislators will. Just what government intervention would mean in this case, however, remains pretty unclear. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on facial recognition, including where the technology currently stands and how we're being surveilled with Axios AI reporter Kave Waddell. But first, this. Axios chief technology correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to Get Smarter Faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Kaveh Waddell, who covers all things artificial intelligence for Axios. Let's start with this. You know, when you talk to technologists in almost any sector, they compare innovation life cycles to baseball games. So in that spirit, what inning are we in when it comes to facial recognition technology? Well, we might be somewhere around the middle. You know, the game's kind of getting started, maybe uh, three, four, in that the technology's getting pretty good. It's starting to be rolled out fairly widely in, uh, for example, in law enforcement. Police departments across the country have been using it to compare, for example, surveillance footage, images from surveillance footage against a huge database of mugshots that they might have, or even just a ton of driver's license photos to see who it is that they're looking at, for example, in footage of uh, a robbery, you might imagine. So is that where most of the data is being collected? In other words, from, I mean, whether it be a mugshot, but for any of one of us who have gotten a passport or a driver's license, is that kind of the, the constant that, that's being used on this? And, and on the other side, where is this surveillance footage? I mean, are these kind of cameras sitting on street lights and stuff? Where are the pictures coming from? Yes. Yeah, so if we're talking about law enforcement, there's a commercial world that's sort of a little bit different. But in the case of government use, most of the photos that they're comparing against are coming from exactly that, from driver's licenses. You know, if it's uh, federal, it might be passport photos, definitely mugshots. Those are public record. Are they also scraping stuff that we put online? So it's one thing to, you know, have your picture taken and, that, and that's in a, guaranteed in a government database, right? Because it's a driver's license photo. But, you know, when I put a picture on Instagram or something like that, is that stuff getting scraped also? Sure. Those are going to be more for um, for commercial or even academic research. So on Instagram, you might imagine that something you put up there is going to help Facebook, which owns Instagram, fine-tune its own facial recognition algorithms, which it makes money off of. You upload photos and it immediately helps you tag people. And then that's kind of a, an engagement plus for them. There has been some controversy over people, even academic researchers, using photos that are in the public domain. And some companies have done this too. So they might scrape Flickr, for example, make sure that they're using the right license. So law-wise, they're on the right side, but they're not asking for consent from the you know hundreds of thousands of people whose faces they're using to train these algorithms. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they can recognize those specific people now, but their faces are being used to make a company's algorithm better. 
I'm going to ask you about the moral and the, and the ethical implications in a minute, but just from a technology perspective, if we're kind of in the middle innings here, what's facial recognition still not good at? There's been talk over the years, for example, that they're particularly bad with women of color, for example, or have been not as good with women of color, say, as a white man. But, you know, if I grow a beard or put on glasses, what can it not do right now or not do well? That's a huge question hanging over all over this right now. Uh, how good is the accuracy and what changes can kind of throw it off? So like you said, there have been sort of the main question is, is it less accurate for people of color? Is it less accurate for women than it is for white men? And that's kind of a question of what training set that's been trained on. Since that has been a big conversation for several years, the big companies have started to shift and try to correct that to some extent. Although one big problem is that there's sometimes little transparency around these algorithms. So it's hard to know really how much that remains an issue, but it's likely to, to still be an issue. We did a podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago about the situation in China where facial recognition technology apps are being incorporated by law enforcement there to round up people, to round up Muslims specifically in a particular province, officially on terrorism charges, but really not, uh, and, and basically put them into re-education camps. That's gotten a bunch of attention in Silicon Valley. Do you think that's having an impact on companies developing facial recognition technologies, at the very least in them questioning the ethics of it, or maybe slow walking release a bit to work through the ethical issues ahead of time, which would be a new thing for Silicon Valley, because usually they release product and, and worry about the consequences later? Yeah, I think China's a huge wake-up call. You see uh, racism sort of explicitly built into some of the models, trying to identify Uyghur Muslim minorities, for example, and, and differentiate them from other people. There are some companies who have taken this sort of to heart and slowed down or, or put more resources into trying to make sure that this is largely accurate across the board, for example. Um, whether that's going to slow companies from actually putting out relatively lucrative algorithms and programs and products. I don't think we've seen that yet. Amazon, for example, has a program called Recognition. That's Recognition with a K. Of course it is. <laughs> and it's gotten all sorts of uh, pushback from activists and uh, privacy advocates who say that the technology generally, that facial recognition technology, is too half-baked to be used on people without their consent, which is what some of the law enforcement agencies that have been using recognition are essentially doing. And there was even a shareholder vote recently where a couple investors brought some questions to the table over whether or not Amazon should stop selling to police entirely or maybe do a very thorough human rights impact report and research project on it. They failed, of course, and Amazon continues to sell this, but it's a visible question. And the China question does also come up in conversations about regulating the technology. For example, San Francisco just last month outright banned facial recognition, right. which was a big deal in that it's the first major city to do that in the U.S. It's a small deal in that the city wasn't actually using facial recognition. It's a combination of a symbolic move and sort of setting up a barrier in case the city wanted to move in that direction. But I think the China question sort of looms large over all of that. Kaveh Waddell of Axios, thank you so much for joining us. My final two right after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata Podcast. 
Now it's time for my final two. And first up, our antitrust hearings yesterday on Capitol Hill, which included Department of Justice antitrust boss Macon Del Rahim seeming to endorse what's become known as hipster antitrust or the idea that things like diminished data privacy could count as consumer harm. But perhaps the bigger news from the Hill was a request from online publishers that they receive an exemption or a waiver from antitrust law in order to collectively negotiate with platforms like Google and Facebook, which currently make lots of money by serving ads against those publishers' content without compensation. So there is disagreement over the impact on these platforms if publishers threaten to collectively pull their content. But one thing is clear. These publishers are desperate and view this, this waiver, as their last best hope to stop a digital train they weren't smart enough to slow down years ago. And finally, Silicon Valley had another big tech IPO last night when cybersecurity company CrowdStrike raised over $600 million. Now, you might know CrowdStrike from when it was the first to say that the Democrats Democratic National Committee had been hacked by groups with ties to Russian intelligence. But Wall Street now knows it as the latest tech unicorn to raise big money at a price higher than originally anticipated. So CrowdStrike's original IPO filing was to sell shares at 19 to 23 bucks, later raised to 23 to 30 bucks, and then it ended up at $34 per share. That's a lot of numbers. But the bottom line is that investors still have a voracious appetite for money losing unicorns so long as they don't focus on ride hail. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great national jerky day. And we'll be back on Friday with another Pro Rata Podcast.